On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to be talking about schools now that they're going to be shut down until May at least. What now? How do you graduate students who can't go to school? How do you teach classes when we've been told that online learning doesn't work? Who gets the education? What do you do? There's, look, there's a million questions and no good answers. We'll be discussing what is the least bad answer to some of these problems. We're also going to be chatting about junk science. There's a lot of it going around. A lot of folk remedies for coronavirus and that. Um, it's not just that the stuff is stupid, a lot of it. I mean, go ahead and drink elephant pee if you want. But how are people actually getting sucked into believing this stuff? Well, we'll talk to someone who studies this as part of his job, the willingness to believe things like this. And then we will talk about science a little bit because we have heard so much about science. Science, we're following the science. If we followed the science so perfectly... Why are we here? Shouldn't science have saved us? The idea raises some questions we'll discuss. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. You've probably heard it earlier today. The announcement that Ontario schools are going to be remaining closed for at least another month. And then we're going to reevaluate. The government's going to reevaluate at that point where things stand. Uh, That's not good news. I mean, necessary, I suppose, but not good news. And we also heard that final report cards are apparently going to be issued with grades. That's a bit of a head scratcher. I don't know how we do that one. We'll get into that in just a minute here. But point is, we are way past the point of simply saying this is no different from a school year that has a bunch of snow days or a few days lost to a teacher strike or something like that. We are now talking about a lot of class time, a lot of instructional time missed, uh, with a whole lot more yet to come. Which leads to one very, very simple question. Now what? Well, let me bring in Dr. Joel Westheimer. He is a university research research chair in democracy and education at the University of Ottawa. He's an education advocate. He's an author. Hello. He's a commentator. There, uh, are you there, doctor? Yes, I'm here, hey, Scott. Thank you for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. My pleasure. Can you recall, and I mean, you're a young man, and so I, we, you and I don't go back to the Dep- Great Depression or the wars or whatever, but can you recall another conundrum like this for administrators and school boards and ministries of education? No, this is a truly unique situation uh, in education as it is for the rest of the world. Certainly not in your lifetime or, or my lifetime has there been something uh, this global uh, and and this impactful. Uh, and I was in, I'm from New York originally, I was in New York City for 9-11, which of course had a, a dramatic uh, impact on institutions in that city, but it wasn't global in the same way as it, and it wasn't as long-lasting. I was going to say, remind me if you can, roughly how long students were out of school then. It was a couple of weeks or three weeks or so, wasn't it? It, if it that... was a couple of weeks, and, and, and and not even in all schools, uh, you know, so it, it, there was disruption for sure, but um, it was nothing like this. And so, you know, we like to point to governments and say, figure this out. But I mean, look, to be fair to them in this one, there really is no playbook for this. Yeah, there, there really isn't. And, and you know, they're, they're 
kind of making it up as they go along. But there are things that we can draw on, and there's certainly things we know uh, about uh, about education and in, in other institutions in society, too. Things that seemed impossible, you know, a couple of weeks ago are now all of a sudden uh, inevitable. You know, in, in just one easy example in, in the United States that, that has struggled so much to get uh, universal health care, you know, there, there's now going to be um, that kind of attention, not permanently, we don't know, but certainly it, it's, um, it's now possible. And, and the same goes with schools here in Canada uh, and in Ontario, that, um, you know, what, what yesterday seemed like would be uh, an absolute showstopper um, today seems like, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll make it through. All right, so let me go through a few of the options that I've come up with um, that I can think of. And th- this is sort of my exhaustive list, and it's not really all that long. Uh, we could extend the school year, although it doesn't seem like too many people are going to want to want to go through the summer. That doesn't seem like it's going to get a lot of traction. We could go to online teaching, but we've just heard through the situation between the teachers and the government that they say that this is not a good way to teach. Uh, we could cancel the year and make everybody do the whole year over again. I don't think that's going to go anywhere. Um, we could just pass everyone and push them on till next year and hope they catch up. I don't know that that's helpful. Uh, none of these sound very appetizing. Here's the thing, Scott, and, and th- that sounds like a great brainstormed list of possibilities, and I'm sure it's the same one that uh, many administrators and school boards are, are looking through and, and provincial ministries of education. Um, it's actually your final one that I think is closest to what should and probably will happen, um, but combined with the idea of, of certain aspects of online learning. So most school boards uh, are preparing, and some have already started, um, doing some version of online learning or online learning light. I think it would be a mistake to, uh, for, for boards to expect teachers to do the same thing they were going to do in school um, online. That's just not going to work. We know that uh, online learning has immense limitations that, uh, that are not going to allow the same, kind of, uh, the same kind of work to take place. And also our students are in very different places. Um, there's enormous inequality in who has computers, who has Internet, uh, and who has access to a quiet place to do this kind of work. That said, the idea of falling behind um, or catching up is overblown. We know from education research that uh, there is, especially in the younger years, which is where people are you know, looking to it so much, there is so much um, kind of variation in where kids are at different times uh, in their development that the idea of being behind or being ahead is not very meaningful for very young children. And in this case, we're going to have, sure, a whole country, a whole world, um, where kids have missed uh, a certain amount of school. It doesn't mean that the world is going to stop. It doesn't mean that they're uh, going to be behind. First of all, the, it, this is a global phenomenon, so everyone is going to have some gaps in their achievement, including you know all of us doing work from home. Um, it's not going to be the disaster that I think um, people are worried about. If we just continue on, we'll do some things online for sure. Some parents are working with their kids. I don't think parents should feel like they have to be uh, their the, you know, substitute teachers. And when the school year starts next year, uh, it's going to start. And some kids will have some review uh, or some things that they missed. Others will just, you know, there'll be a few topics that they haven't gotten. Um, the world isn't going to end from that. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. 
heard today that the school system in Ontario is going to remain shuttered until at least May, and we don't know after that. But there are going to be grades, report cards with grades at the end of all this, and it is a hugely complicated situation. It is a really unclear situation. And so we brought in Dr. Joel Westheimer, who is the University Research Chair in Democracy and Education at the University of Ottawa, and he's an author, and he's an advocate, and he does a lot of other things in the world of education. And just before the break, you were saying that probably the closest guess that we can make right now is that students will be pushed through, and then next year they will have some catching up or whatever else to do. It, it, does, it does bring me to a question we've had before, though, when school boards have... Uh, had a lot of, for example, snow days or accumulate an accumulation of snow days and strike days or whatever else, everything else, and they say, well, it's okay. There's, you know, we we didn't really lose anything, and I'm wondering what we do lose if we lop a month or a month and a half realistically of education off a Ontario school, especially the older grades, uh, doctor, the older grades. What are we losing when we send them on to the next grade or to university for that matter? You know, it, it, of course, Scott, depends on, on each subject area, right? The, the, the most important message I want your listeners to know is that um, I don't think parents need to freak out about trying to um, keep their kids uh, caught up right, um, to, to what's going on, because everyone is in the same boat, and there's going to be um, some gaps. But just like the snow days, you know, what happens with snow days is people start to get very nervous, school administrators, because in most um, provincial education acts, there are minimum numbers of school days that constitute a school year. Um, that's going to be, those rules are going to be suspended, so we're not talking about a, a bureaucratic problem here. We're really just focusing on, you know, what are kids going to be going to be missing. And of course, they're going to be missing out on some learning opportunities. But you know, the kids also aren't sitting at home um, just um, sleeping all day. Yes, many will be, uh, you know, on their on, on the internet or doing things that many parents will think are not as productive, but there are learning opportunities here. And that's what I'd like to see uh, parents, teachers, and school boards take advantage of, because there are things um, kids can do at home that is not duplicating school, but is instead of instead of school, right? Um, there's, there's learning opportunities for what's going on in the world, um, for spending more time with family, for um, being able to touch base with friends in different ways, um, and for following the current events and so forth. So we're substituting in some ways one kind of learning um, for another. Will there be gaps? Absolutely. And what we know from other similar, although there's nothing exactly like this, um, similar events is, is what learning time correlate, you know, what happens when there's less learning time is a greater level of inequality between, mm. between the opportunities for kids. So kids from um, poorer households or even just households where there are essential workers who need to be at work uh, all day, um, those kids are not going to get the same opportunities as kids from households with parents who are at home. And, and I was just going to ask you that because I think there are some parents, I know there are parents right now who are working as ad hoc teachers and have a curriculum set up for their kids and others who don't, that, that would seem that the gap come the fall is going to be even bigger between some kids. 
Absolutely, and and it w- that gap will be bigger. And what school boards, I think, especially, and what I'm encouraging teachers and administrators to focus on, is providing opportunities for those kids uh, who might not have parents at home um, doing things with them. But that that does not mean, however, just giving those kids a lot of homework like they would in school, worksheets, uh, even following the same lesson plans. What it means is um, taking in the situation we have now, knowing that kids are going to be at home that they're going to possibly have access to um, internet connections, possibly not, and and disseminate um, projects that make sense for the situation we're in, not try and uh, kind of replicate the classroom at home. I don't want to be dumping more work right now for the fall on teachers or students, but should that almost be expected that when the fall rolls around and the new year gets started, assuming it does, that some students are going to be needing more time to catch up, and that means some teachers are going to have to be putting in more time than that maybe they're not doing right now because there can't be, that it's going to be extra work come fall. Well, I'll tell you, what's interesting is that this is coinciding with an enormous um, movement that's, that's evidence-based on, on what we know about what is already a, a, a colossal waste of time in a lot of schools, which is endless test preparation. And what happened from one day to the next is the ministry in Ontario, for example, suspended all EQAO testing. Um, there's nothing wrong with some, some testing to see, you know, what's going on in schools. But EQAO, just like other standardized testing across North America, um, has kind of taken over the, the school system. It's the, it's the testing tail that has wagged the mm. school reform dog. And overnight, the testing was just gone. It saves enormous amounts of time, enormous amounts of money, because teachers devote months of the curriculum in just preparing kids to take these tests, even doing test-taking skills, which has nothing to do with the content that they are learning. So my advice to school boards would be to continue that moratorium on tests for next year and give teachers the freedom to uh, not only support their students uh, emotionally and in all the ways that they're going to need after this next year and now, but also to um, give teachers the freedom to focus on the areas that they think are important for their local classroom of students and not try and meet some kind of uh, provincial standard that's going to be unattainable. I wish we had more time, uh, but it does seem, and I do have to run, unfortunately, it does seem that though grading any student almost seems like a bit of a waste of time at this point. Let's, you know, sort of let it go. If we can't do this right, let's let's leave it and figure it out. Let's focus on, on giving teachers the space they need to support students and their families. I think that's the best thing we can do right now. Dr. Joel Westheimer, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure, Scott. Talk to you again soon. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Go online if you dare, and you will see that there is no shortage of interesting, and I use the word generously, I could say crackpot, but I'll say interesting ideas of ways to cure coronavirus. They're out there. The cures are out there. Vitamin C, just dump as like 14 pounds a day of vitamin C into your body and you're good. Uh, Pointing a blow dryer up your nose and blowing it. That one was put out there by a governor, I believe. Uh, Drinking bleach. We heard about that one before. That's not a good idea. Don't do that one. Uh, Using essential oils. Chiropractic. Uh, The president of uh, Belarus... Uh, suggested hockey, vodka, and a traditional sauna would do it. (laughs) I don't know where the hockey part came from. I guess that was just to work your way into drinking the vodka and having the sauna. Um, We we can't 
we can't really be this naive, can we? Oh, yes, we can. We are fully capable of being this naive as evidenced by the fact that people are actually doing some of these things and following some of this advice. Why? Well, this is when we bring in our friend Tim Caulfield. He's been on with us a number of times before. He's a Canada Research Chair in Health Law and Policy. He's a professor in the Faculty of Law and the School of Public Health and the Research Director of the Health Law Institute at the University of Alberta and... He is the author of, among other books, Is Gwyneth Paltrow Wrong About Everything When Celebrity Culture and Science Clash? And as I say, a bunch of other books. He joins us now. Uh, Tim, thanks for doing this today. Really appreciate it. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on. Important topic, right? Well, you know, like we've had you on. We've talked about Gwyneth Paltrow before. And, you know, in a lot of ways, that's kind of silly. And you just go, how do people go through this? How do people do this? This one seems to me to be a lot more serious. Yeah, and it's incredible, as you said off the top, the, the amount of misinformation out there on this topic is absolutely stunning. I, you know, I've been following the spread of health misinformation from an academic perspective for, for decades, and it really, really has intensified uh, around the coronavirus. Um, and, and you're right, you know, it sounds, some of it sounds absolutely ridiculous. Um, you know, you talked about drinking bleach, and there was, a, you know, the idea that you're supposed to drink alcohol. Uh, People have died following this advice. And then there's that, you know, that confusing advice that sounds more plausible, and you touched on some of this, uh, things like you know, a chiropractic adjustment or taking supplements. You know, no, no, there's no evidence to support that. And the worry, of course, is that's going to confuse people and maybe distract them from the things that they should be doing. Uh, and also just it creates a more chaotic information environment and it's already pretty chaotic we don't need we don't need this to make it worse well some of them and, and i touched on a few and, and boy there's a whole lot more out there but the idea of putting a, a hair dryer up your nose and blowing it i mean look anyone if you try it for two seconds and, and you'll probably stop but some of them i mean like, like in theory vitamin c is good for you so or, or chiropractic can be good for you so you hear okay so there is something good in that. Maybe more of it will work. Like there's, there's a nugget of something there that just seems to morph off into something a little crazy. Yeah, I think that's a really, a really good point um, because they do kind of have intuitive appeal, right? We know that our bodies need vitamins and therefore... These are not insane on their own. Yeah, yeah they may, you might think that more vitamins are, you know, are better. And, and, you know, that's not the case at all, right? Uh, in fact, this whole idea of immune boosting, which you see absolutely everywhere, it's something we're actually studying at our institute, you know, the spread of this idea. First of all, that's not even scientifically accurate. You can't really boost your immune system. And also, Scott, nor would you want to, right? You know, that's what autoimmune diseases are. That's what anaphylaxis is. Uh, but that it has intuitive appeal, and a lot of these things that are being pushed online, and most of it is social media, by the way, um, are uh, they, they seem like they might work, but, but there's really no evidence to support them at all. And in fact, sometimes it could be harmful. You know, taking too many vitamins can, uh, can be harmful, uh, and there's evidence to, you know, to back that up. There are these IV vitamin therapies. That's a big thing the naturopaths have been marketing in this space. Um, no evidence to support that, and again, it might be harmful, but it builds on exactly what you just said. You know, the right amount of vitamins and supplements is, you know, is good for you, so therefore more must be better. Hmm. You know, don't buy that hype. Well, here's the thing. We've heard, even in the last number of weeks, we've heard over and over that there is no cure right now for coronavirus. There's no vaccine. It may be coming. It probably will be coming, but there's no cure right now. So when people then hear something, even though they've been told 
there is no cure. When they hear something and latch on to it, uh, truthfully, is it is it insanity or is it just desperation and they will do it because, you know, even though they're reasonably intelligent people, they're desperate enough to try this? Well, I, you know, I think a lot's going on there. I think part of it is is the desperation angle. And, and I think it's better maybe to cast it not so much as desperation, but there's so much uncertainty around around this this crisis. Um, and there's also a lot of fear. And, and research tells us when that happens, uh, often people turn to to, um, you know, conspiracy theories to fill in the gaps, right, in order to make a coherent story. People search for answers. Uh, In addition to that, there's really interesting research, some of it being done right here in Canada, that suggests that if you're exposed to something enough, right, you get this information enough, it seems more believable. It's the illusory truth phenomenon, you know, and that's the way fake news works. If you just see it often enough, it seems more believable. So I think, you know, that's happening. That's happening here, too. Uh, and, and part of it also is just the fact that social media has become such a huge part of our lives. Um, and, and it's this very chaotic way of getting your information. Um, and so we often don't pause and think about what, what we're seeing. And, Scott, there's this really interesting research, again, some of it being done here in Canada, that suggests just pausing uh, is, when you see something on social media, can have a huge impact on whether you share misinformation. Because we don't want to share inaccurate stuff. We want to be accurate. So if you just pause and and think about something before you share it, believe it or not, that simple strategy can have a real impact. Deep down, do you believe that even the people who do this stuff believe that it's quackery if they were to stop and think, or are they really believing that it's true? Uh, You know, I I think it's a continuum, right? I I think that there are people, and unfortunately, a good hunk of of the misinformation out there comes from this sort these kinds of sources. I think there's a good hunk of people out there that are just exploiting the situation, right? They they're exploiting the fear, they're exploiting the uncertainty to sell products. Uh, then I think there are a group of you know some of them healthcare providers that really maybe think you know believe in the, this magical stuff and and they think they're helping people. Um, and and then at the other end, there's sort of the real pharmaceuticals and real science that just is twisted and misrepresented poorly. And we saw that around uh, the malaria uh, drug, right, you know, that, that was being proposed as a possible treatment. And that is just terrible knowledge translation that is, you know, garbled by even the president of the United States uh, in a way that makes may confuse the public. And, and unfortunately, the public still seems confused about that. So... I think there's a lot going on, a lot going on there. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Lots of different things out there telling you they can or it can heal you or prevent the coronavirus. Uh, Not true. Uh, we're talking with Tim Caulfield, who is, uh, I mean, he's got a long resume, and I, I hate to reduce it to this, but he's an expert in junk science, not, not peddling it, diffusing it. Um, for today, that's, that, that's, what we'll, that's what we'll leave it at. Uh, and Tim, just before the break, I said, you know, I'm going to ask you, there are a lot of things out there that we've heard about. What's the craziest one you've heard so far with the coronavirus? So can I pick, can I pick two or three? Sure, yeah, go <laughs> Because I can't get it down to... So the cow urine thing is pretty hard. Well, what's the cow urine thing? So, uh, it came from India, and it's the idea that drinking cow urine was, is a cure for the huh. coronavirus in a way to prevent it. So, uh, Not no, to belittle the virus, but I might take the virus over the drinking the cow urine. Yeah, so this... <laughs> <laughs> not a good idea. Uh, but there's also the idea of putting essential oils on your anus. I don't know if you've heard of that we one. We did hear that one, yes. I forgot that one. Yeah, and but this one just makes me angry. And I know you've heard this one, but I have to I have to say talk about this one. This is 
homeopathy one. And I know that maybe it doesn't seem that insane, but it really bothers me because it got so much traction, even sort of at the government level, the idea that homeopathy, which is complete pseudoscience, uh, might be uh, a cure or a treatment uh, or a preventative strategy for the coronavirus. So, you know, I'm going to give those my gold, silver, bronze for craziness. What's interesting to me about this, and maybe some of those have been pushed this way, but these ones don't seem to be driven by celebrities, at least not the majority of them, which often seems to be the case with the other stuff. Yeah, you're right. And, you know, as you know, I, I kind of monitor that space. And uh, there has been celebrity bunk, which I'll come back to in just a moment, but not as much as you as I initially thought there would be. You are seeing celebrity you know, wellness guru is talking about, again, this idea of boosting your immune system in a way that's sort of unscientific or, or the idea of talking about superfoods in a way that's unscientific and it doesn't really help in any meaningful way. Uh, but there are some out there that are marketing supplements and, and probably uh, the best known one, and, and it breaks my heart because I'm such a huge Patriots fan, is Tom Brady. Um, but now he's with Tampa Bay, so I guess I can say this. <laughs> He's, he's pushing uh, supplements with his TB12 wellness brand, uh, and he's directly connecting it to boosting your immune system to fight the coronavirus. And, and I, re- you know, I really find that maddening. Uh, so, Tom, come on, get it together. Uh, this is not a good idea. And I mentioned the celebrities particularly because it, for some reason, and, and I'm sure there is a really good psychological explanation for this, but for some reason, having a pretty face or being a YouTube star or something seems to convey this sense of medical acumen in the eyes of some. And it got me thinking, all we need to do is make sure all of our doctors are models. And probably the good doctors would be able to get their message out better. Uh, well, we we see that. Look at the show, the the doctors, right? You know, you don't, you know, they're attractive, uh, attractive individuals, and I'm sure that has something to do with their their appeal. But you know what else is going on with, with celebrities, and this is really, I think, important uh, in the context of, of the coronavirus. Is one of the reasons, and again, there's research to back this up. One of the reasons they have so much sway is because they are a powerful and visible testimonial, right? They are an anecdote, right? If Tom Brady uses it and it works, then you know maybe it really does work. Um, and what we're seeing also in the coronavirus space are these really powerful anecdotes and testimonials. We even saw that with the malaria uh, drug. Uh, and we should always remind ourselves when you're reading these stories that you know, a testimonial, uh, a powerful anecdote, that's not good evidence. We need good clinical data before you know, we apply it to the population. Probably, I would think the greatest irony to this whole story and this whole situation is that I fully expect when a vaccine does come out, and as I said a moment ago, I expect that it will, uh, there will be some who will be who will refuse to take it, which yeah. is you know which is the great because they'll be the ones who are probably blowing a hairdryer up their nose. Yeah, it, it's fascinating, and, and again, something else I've been monitoring really closely because you know I do a lot of work uh, on on the anti-vaccination vaccination hesitancy front, and so I've been kind of trying to get a sense of how are they positioning themselves, and they already are, Scott. They're already trying to say you know um, it, it, hand washing is making the difference. You don't need uh, a vaccine. Uh, they're also really big on the conspiracy that this isn't really a bad problem, um, that it is a conspiracy uh, on the left or on the right. You know, it's it's fascinating to see how they're already positioning themselves for when the, the vaccine comes out. So it would be interesting to see what they actually do when there's an effective tra- uh, yeah. vaccine. Yeah, well, we'll see then. If they want to get out of the house, I suppose they'll uh, they'll take it, but we'll find out. Uh, Tim Caulfield, we always love having you on the show. Thanks for doing this today. really appreciate it. Uh, thanks very much, Scott. Uh, you know what? Stay smart out there. 
you know, it's it's not don't take vitamin C. Sure, take vitamin C. It's just, you know, there's there's no cure right now. So don't be sucked into believing there is, sadly. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to encourage everybody to go and look online and read something that's on the Edmonton Journal today. It's at the edmontonjournal.com. It is a truly fascinating really interesting and really important thing that is not really a story per se. They have simply monitored everything that's happened with what's been going on these days, and they have produced a timeline of the past, well, really since about the middle of January. A timeline of what's happened in this country for how this situation has arrived to the place that it is with our response and with what quotes have been said and a lot of other stuff. And I I would really encourage you to go and read this. It takes some time. It's not light reading necessarily. I mean, it's, it's, it's not like reading Latin, but it's, it's dense and you go through this and there's two parts to it. I mean, it's a long thing because it's very, very thorough and I applaud them for that. It's a really important thing they've done here. The EdmontonJournal.com. Um, the headline, if you're looking for it, if you want to search for it, is um, The Road to Canada's COVID-19 Outbreak, Timeline of Federal Government Failure at Border to Slow the Virus. Now, I agree with a lot of other people who with what they're saying right now, and that is, look, this is an important time that we don't be picking political fights about this. All right, we're, uh, you keep hearing people say we're all in this together. We are, this is not the time to be casting blame, I guess, is the right thing. I mean, there will be plenty of time for questions and blame and all that other stuff, especially politically. Uh, There will be plenty of time for that down the road. So I'm going to save any political stuff or as much as possible for another day. That's not what this is about. There is a, 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 a story in this, though, if you read through the lines, because there is a lot of politics in this. But the story that I find so fascinating about what we're talking about with the coronavirus in Canada right now is that you hear, and this is not a political statement, this is a fact. I'm not, I'm not, um, you have to mention certain politicians when you talk about this. They're front and center. And one of them is the prime minister. And you will have heard the prime minister over the last number of days and weeks talk about how we have followed the science, how we have followed the science to make our decisions, right? That's not a political statement. That's a truthful, factual statement about what is being said. We have followed the science. And that's where I want to pick up, not with what the prime minister has had to say, But with the idea of following the science, because there seems to be this idea that science is this thing, this overwhelming big thing, that science, quote, quote, science is is this monolith that is a absolute truth of all things, that if we follow science, well, science will always lead us to the right answer because science is science. Science is never wrong. Science is always right. And, and we, we chalk up this idea of science as a, as a, a I don't know, a, an infallible, truthful guide and roadmap to where we have to go. We follow the science. Well, 
my question is, if we follow the science and science is never wrong, and I'm not, look, I'm not, we just talked last hour about junk science. I'm not under any circumstances wanting to be interpreted as saying, hey, yeah, go start running a blow dryer up your nose because that'll kill coronavirus. That's not what I'm talking about at all. Don't drink bleach. Don't drink cow urine. Don't do all that stuff that we're hearing about. That's not what I'm saying. But if we, if science was infallible, we wouldn't, I don't think, be in the situation that we're in right now. Because we've said from the beginning, we're following the science. Well, if that's the case, and if science is infallible, and science never changes, and science is always right, how are we here? How are we in quarantine? How do we have a coronavirus racing through the country? We followed the science. That should have solved all of our problems, right? Well, no, it, clearly that's not the case. The, clearly that's not the case. And in this Edmonton Journal rundown narrative, and I, obviously I'm not going to read the whole thing to you. You can do that yourself. And as I say, I encourage you to do it. But let me just jump to a couple spots in this thing. Because this is following the science. Which... Again, I'm not arguing that following the science is a bad idea by any stretch. But here was January 20th and 29th, and Dr. Tam, who you see, Teresa Tam, who you see on TV all the time now with the uh, the commercials and the interviews and everything else. When asked about the policy of voluntary self-isolation of only those travelers showing clear symptoms, the science said... The only people who should be quarantined, apparently, were those who had been in the China area or maybe some other places where this had been, and they should voluntarily go only if they have clear symptoms should they go. That was the science. Here's a quote. Right now we have protocols in place together with the provinces and territories on isolating cases. Certainly doing rigorous contact tracing and monitoring is key to preventing any spread from a case in Canada. That, I think, is of primary importance. For other completely asymptomatic people, currently there's no evidence we should be quarantining them. Huh. That was the science. That was the science. Asymptomatic people, no reason to quarantine them. And you'll go through this thing later, and you'll find out that the science said, well, we really don't think that it's going to be common for people who are asymptomatic to pass this stuff, and on and on and on. That was the science. But science never lets us down, right? Science is the answer to all of our issues, right? And I'm not being I'm not trying to be ridiculous. I'm I'm simply pointing out we we have this fallback position a lot of times that says follow the science. I have you heard the line that people have used in times especially with things like the climate situation right now where they say the science is settled. Well, wait a second. The science is settled. We were following the science for the coronavirus, and the science we learned changed. The science wasn't the science. I mean, the science was the science, but the science changed underfoot. So what we thought was the science is not really anymore. But so how do we ever now say the science is settled? I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it bends your brain a little bit when you think about it, that this thing... And again, we, we, we sort of call everything science under this umbrella of science, but we call it science like it's somehow 
answer it answers everything. Well, I, no, and, and this is this this is distressing to a lot of people. This will be distressing to think about it. Wait a second, the best information we had, the science that we had, wasn't right. So we followed what we were told was right because it was science. But it wasn't right. Doesn't mean that the that there was malice. It doesn't mean that the people who were doing it were idiots. Nothing like that. It means what we believed under the guise of science was incorrect. And let's go back even further because there is something else that we got to consider in this. And that is science does not exist outside the real world. There are influences that press upon what we call science. And if you also go back earlier that day, earlier that day on January the 29th, and I'm just trying to find the quote here because uh, also from uh, Dr. Tam, there was questions about, well, should we be shutting the borders to all flights coming from China? Not to Chinese people directly, although there would obviously be some of those on the flights. Not We're not shutting the border to Chinese people. We're, should we be shutting the border to planes coming from the hotspot? And the answer was, racism, discrimination, and stigmatizing language are unacceptable and hurtful. Everyone has a part to play in preventing the spread of the virus. The Chinese community and all other travelers from affected area are a key part of these efforts. But racism, discrimination, and stigmatizing language are unacceptable and hurtful. These actions create a divide, us versus them. Well, okay. Would the science, if we got to do it over again, would science have told us that it would have been advantageous to stop planes coming from China? I think probably we would agree yes. But here, last October, I was talking to Dr. Gordon Guyatt, who's at McMaster. He had just done a study. It's not related per se. He had done a study on whether or not red meat was really as bad for you as others had said. And his study had found, no, it really didn't cause the kind of death and health problems that a lot of studies had said. And we got into this. Can politics, can outside influences, can science be affected by things beyond just science? Here's my question from that day, and here's what he said. One of the things, and we, I said off the top that we hear, well, science says this, or we're following the science. We hear this yesterday in the leadership debate for the federal election. We heard about climate change and the science repeatedly. But you're saying that what we are getting is interpretation. And we're now seeing from this that people who have science that maybe flies in the face of the accepted narrative or the accepted wisdom shouldn't be heard or those studies shouldn't be out there. Should this cast doubt on other science, whether it's climate change or something else, that we're only getting what people want us to hear? Um, yes. <laughs> the, 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 short, the short answer is yes, um, that there sometimes that a particular narrative um, gets accepted and uh, becomes authoritative inappropriately. And, and you're a nut if you decide to come up with something else. Um, yeah, potentially. That was his answer from back then. Look, I'm not arguing for a second that this is not real, that people aren't sick and dying, nothing like that, nothing like that. Simply saying this has been a real eye-opening to me and maybe to a lot of other people situation 
that when we put that we're putting our faith in science as this thing that always is going to be right and always is going to give us the truthful answer and always going to solve our problems. And we've heard the prime minister repeatedly say we're following the science. And guess what? The science has not protected us from this. The best science, I hate to keep using the word, but that's all it is. The best science that we have had has not kept us from this. I, I don't know exactly what to, where to go from there. I don't know what to say from that. It's just, as I say, it's eye-opening to me that the next time somebody says to you, well, science says this must be true, I would say, but science told us that we didn't need to stop planes and asymptomatic people didn't pass the virus and that it couldn't jump from animals to people and that China had this all under control and on and on and on. I don't know whether this is supposed to make us more or less or anything confident in science, but I suppose that if you put your complete faith in this broad term called science and listen to everything without questioning anything, well, you do so at your own peril, I guess. doesn't mean science is bad. just means maybe, maybe every single thing in our world is not easily answered by what we call science. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.